Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by David French, Jonah Goldberg, and staff writer of the Dispatch, Andrew Egger. Plenty to discuss today. Primaries. What did we learn? The Senate gun bill. Merits of the bill. Likelihood it gets done. And of course, we'll end with January 6th. How are they doing? Let's dive right in. So on Tuesday, we had a lot. We had South Carolina. We had Alaska. We had Nevada. We had a Texas special. David, high-level takeaways? Uh, High-level takeaway is that, um, how should I say this, Sarah? Trump's grip is not slipping as much as I'd like. Uh, So the big takeaway for me is Tom Rice lost. I mean, that's the big disappointment. This is one of the very few House Republicans who um, voted to impeach Trump. The sl- slight consolation prize is that he didn't beat Nancy Mace. Nancy Mace uh, voted to certify the election and then was quite aggressive after January 6th and sort of dismissing uh, Trump's uh, election fraud claims and quite aggressive in attacking the you know the events of January 6th. And Trump put her in his crosshairs and she won. Uh, so maybe there was a little bit of premature joy after the Georgia primary. Uh, also quite true that South Carolina is a pretty different place electorally than Georgia these days. Georgia is a pretty purple state. South Carolina is still about as deep red as it gets. Um, we walk through some of this stuff on advisory opinions and Sarah, you the flagship podcast. Exactly. Thank you. I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the, the, um, for a style guide failure of not putting mm. that in. <laughs> and Sarah, you had some really interesting polling data on what the Trump endorsement actually means. And, and maybe you could walk through some of that. Uh, but the short answer not to like steal your thunder is it means a lot, but not everything. My thunder feels stolen. <laughs> it feels lessened. Uh, by the way, do you know the etymology of that phrase? I do not. What phrase? Stealing someone's thunder. Uh-uh. I feel like I knew this at one point. What is it? Is it a gas thing? No, in the 19th <laughs> century, this um, guy, actually it might've even been before the 19th century, but it was a, a, a th- theater thing. He created the like sound, you know, that little metal sheet or whatever that makes uh-huh. the thunder sound. And then someone else used it later and he, he was sitting in the audience and he said, they stole my thunder. And that's, that's really fantastic. what it came from. Yeah. It actually means to steal someone's thunder. That's great. Because <laughs> otherwise like it doesn't make a yeah. ton of sense. Uh, okay. But anyway, so this was a study done out of Echelon Insights. And I say study because it's not a normal poll where you simply ask people, how much does Trump's endorsement matter to you and take their word for it? Because you all know how I feel about asking people questions that they can't possibly answer and then taking the answers as if it is like the gospel truth. But what Echelon did was really interesting. They would give people basically candidate resumes with lots of different things on each resume. Um, So, you know, it would have... uh, this person is between 18 and 35. They were a former CEO. They're LGBTQ and Trump endorsed them. And they would mix and match all of these different characteristics. 
And then at the end, you can actually use sort of regression analysis to see how much any given item mattered. And therefore, the the people don't actually know what they're being tested on, which I found way more reliable. So using that, and we'll put it in the show notes so you can read the um, their explanation, which is probably better than mine. On the Republican side, in a Republican primary among Republican primary voters, if a candidate is endorsed by Donald Trump and other local Republican leaders, they found a 29% bounce. That's just incredibly high. That's like a done deal, basically. That would be very hard to overcome. If a candidate is endorsed by Donald Trump, but not other Republican leaders, it went down to 3%. And that has also looked about right. Even looking at Nancy Mace's race, where she's endorsed by Nikki Haley, the former governor, Mick Mulvaney, a former congressman from the state who goes on to be Trump's chief of staff, but not endorsed by Donald Trump, it appeared that she had some hump to to overcome, but it was a relatively low one and one that she could clear. Whether it's 3%, 2%, 5%, like that all feels about right to me. Uh, Interestingly, David, you know, is a public speaker or talk show host negative 17% among Republican primary voters? So looking at Pennsylvania, (laughs) some things feel less true than others. On the Democratic side, by the way, for Democratic primary voters, just to give this some context, an endorsement by Joe Biden and Kamala Harris was only worth 14 points. So compare that to the 29 points on the Republican side, and you do start to see that uh, Republicans certainly care about references more. An endorsement by Elizabeth Warren or AOC, double-digit negative. Woo-hoo! <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I have one point of information, Yeah, uh, Counselor. Um so you say that when Republican Republican establishment, let's call it that, and Trump both endorse, it's worth twenty nine. What is the Republican establishment endorse endorsement without Trump worth? You say because Trump's alone is only worth three. What's the Republican establishment's worth? Uh, endorsed by local Republican leaders, but not by Donald Trump. Negative uh, ten. Interesting. Okay. Interesting. I have questions about this this regression analysis. In general, I mean, it's just just going off of. Don't the, question the science. The, no, well, well, I just I just mean the the. I mean, it was a it was a random ex- uh, hypothetical that you brought up, but uh, you know, eighteen to thirty five. That's a plus in my column. Former CEO is a plus in my column. But if I saw a candidate that was both of those things, I would have some questions. You know, like why? <laughs> what are you doing here? Um, why maybe? <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know. There's, it seems sketchy of all of a sudden to me. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, and I think that's where you see the Elizabeth Warren and AOC endorsements. It's, I think those are actually negative because when people see them in some other context, they sort of picture what that candidate is in their head. It's not that an endorsement by Elizabeth Warren, if you ask right. them, would ever be negative. And so when they see it on these mixed up little resumes... They're like, ooh, that means that person's crazy, even though they would never tell a pollster that, which is, again, why I find this pretty interesting. Um, on the Democratic side, by the way, in their 60s or older, negative 12% is a member of the LGBTQ community was one of the highest. It was plus 6%, which isn't that high, by the way, meaning there wasn't any one thing um, that was really standing out to Democratic primary voters. Okay, Jonah, maybe set aside South Carolina. You're you're an Alaska expert of sorts. <laughs> uh-huh. I'm off on a fact-finding mission momentarily, yes? Go Ooh. On. 
Uh, Alaska held their first weird primary, nonpartisan primary, where the top four finishers will move on to a ranked choice voting general election. And for the most part, uh, there wasn't anything we were watching except for one congressional race that pitted Santa Claus against Sarah Palin uh, against a Begich, which is a famous last name, yep. uh, former senator in Alaska as well. Historically Democratic Party, but this guy is a Republican. Yeah. Right. So what do you think? Um, well, it's funny because I was just asking one of my primary sources on Alaskan policy, politics, who I happen to be married to, uh, um, about all this. And I was like, so where do the extended Gavora, that's my wife's family, you know, where do they come down on all this? And she was like, I have no idea. I can't wait to find out this weekend. Um, because it's, it's, it's super complicated up there. I think having not studied it, Palin is um, by no means a shoe in for anything. And she came in first, yeah. but that's not with the ranked choice voting. Right. So but people she's are nobody's, expecting that to make a difference. She's nobody's second choice. Mm-hmm. Right. And but she does have really high name ID. She does. Uh, and particularly in that state, but that's not entirely a good thing. I mean, um, arguably she has higher name ID than Santa Claus. <laughs> Who, again, I just want to say, was running in this race. His name is Santa Claus, and he like basically lives in the North Pole. No relation. Well, it, well, it, for the record, <laughs> uh, starting tonight, I will be staying in North Pole, Alaska for the next few days because it's a suburb outside of Fairbanks. I do want to change. So, as we all know, Alaska is the largest state. It's the biggest state, despite certain states talking about how big they are. Uh, it's Texas literally would, in our anthem. Texas We had to change our anthem. fit into Alaska like almost three times, I believe, maybe four times. Um, I actually think the most interesting race, if it's sort of like, if you could, if you imagine you're telling the story of the last 10 years, 10 years from now, right? So in 2022, 2032, you look back on, wow, politics have changed a lot. I think the special election in that, that adorable quaint little state of Texas, um, is, uh, really kind of interesting in, insofar it's uh, all Hispanic. It's like an 85% Hispanic district. There was a special election Republican one. She's pretty serious Republican, uh, born in Mexico. And, uh, you know, Democrats think that they're going to win when, the, when they're having the general uh, that remains to be seen, who knows. Um, but I think you could see how this is the beginning of a narrative of the, competitiveness for the Hispanic vote in, in the United States of America in ways that I think would be wholly to the good for the United States of America. Yeah. Making Hispanics a competitive constituency would bleed so much of the nastiness out of the immigration debate. Um, it already makes, you know, I, I love watching these Republicans talking about how proud they are to have, um, you know, a, Me- a, a Mexican immigrant essentially as a, you know, a member of Congress who are also the people who just cheered whenever pr- Trump said, you know, Mexico's not sending its best. <laughs> um, it's, it's an interesting distinction. And so I, I'm, I'm more hopeful, more about sort of larger issues than sort of the, the rank punditry, what does the primary stuff mean kind of thing. Um, and on, just on the Trump question that you were raising from the echelon uh, thing, I... I I, I kind of disagree with David a little bit. I, I don't think this was that bad a week for the um, the bleeding away of Trump's influence in the in the GOP. I mean, it was always going to be contingent on facts on the ground. I think one of the reasons, yeah, you're right that, that that Georgia is more purple than South Carolina, 
But also partisan Republicans in Georgia remember losing two Senate seats because of all of that nonsense. And they're, so they're, they're madder at somebody else than Raffensperger and, and Kemp. Um, and I just don't think that you can listen to the debate, which we're going to get to the January 6th committee in a second. You can listen to the converse, the national conversation about that and read Donald Trump's 12 page tweet, <laughs> um, responding to all this stuff and think it was like a, a particularly good week for the forces of Trumpism. So I want to burst Jonah's bubble about that Texas special election in several respects. So Texas 34 runs from just east of San Antonio down to Brownsville, right at the border, and just over ever so slightly, almost touching McAllen. Uh, the district's 84% Hispanic. Jonah's right. The Republican won with 51%, avoiding a runoff. The uh, Democrat had 43%, so roughly seven, eight-point difference. A few problems with this. One, the person who holds the seat will only hold it through January because there will be another election in November in the general election. Even though this was a special election, not a primary, if that makes sense, it is only the replacement for the stub term. Um, So what happened was that Democrats didn't spend any money. He raised $46,000. She raised $700,000 and had a million-dollar ad buy from outside groups. Two, this election was held in the old district, which Biden won by four points. The November election will be held in the new district, which is actually going to be more Democratic. So another little uphill bump for Republicans. And three, congressional districts at this point have roughly 726,000 people, I think, Um 14,000 people voted for her this week, which is just incredibly low. Really hard to do some big picture analysis on the Hispanic vote with like seven of them. My bubble (laughs) remains intact. Um, I I, I stipulated that I thought this was mostly a literary interpretation. Yes, you did. when, When a dam breaks... The first thing to come out are a couple little drops, and no one thinks that'll do any damage. <laughs> so we'll see. I am more than willing to read in a whole bunch in November on this race. And frankly, I think we have a ton from 2020 to suggest that the Hispanic vote isn't a monolith. Right. Yes, a ton. And especially along the Texas border, South the Florida. New Mexico border with Texas and Mexico, a little bit in Florida. So again, plenty su- to suggest this, but like the shriek coming from the Republican side about what a big win this was. I was like, mm, uh, I don't see <laughs> it. Yeah. Well, okay, can I just add one thing on, on the, the sort of intra party messaging on all of this, which, which is the interesting thing to me. I mean, obviously with, with Trump and Trumpism being the dominant force in the Republican party, um, a, a lot of the, the criticism that has been leveled at that, at that group from outside for some obvious reasons has been kind of the, the white grievance politics of, of Trump and Trumpism. But there has also been this sort of weird uh, thread of Trumpism all along that is this kind of really optimistic kind of triumphalism that they're going to make like huge inroads with all sorts of non-Republican constituencies. I mean, like like um, Trump always always thought he was going to do better than uh, than any previous Republicans with with African Americans, with Hispanics, with the LGBT uh, community, and and there's almost this weird energy. Um, or that this this weird tension among a lot of like kind of the pro-Trump populist crowd, 
where you have guys like Steve Bannon, who are, you know, a populist populist, but, but, but echoing a lot of that kind of like, no, we're going to do this. We're going to, you know, from, from, from constituency to constituency, we're going to be great. And then you have guys who are on the kind of much fringier, much more hardcore kind of white nationalist, uh, America first type who think all that's ridiculous and insane and, and that you're never going to catch up with Hispanics and you're never going to make inroads with, you know, gay people. And that really, you just need to kind of rally the white working class, uh, until the, until the cows come home. Um, and so it's, <laughs> it, it, as, as a messaging from a pure messaging point of view, uh, I don't necessarily mind, uh, Republicans kind of like getting behind that. And e- even if it is a bit of a mirage, um, I, I think it's a mirage that's helping the, the slightly less grotesque constituencies in play here. It's interesting because it's a mirage in some respects, but if you actually look at some of the races and break it out by gender, uh, not as much of a mirage. Uh, Latino men in Nevada really divided from Latino women. And then in the LA race just um, two weeks ago, the former Republican running as a Democrat against Karen Bass, a black woman, she he beat Karen Bass among black men by 30 points. It's amazing. Wow. That's amazing. Now people are attributing that to like sort of his law and order message. Frankly, it's impossible to separate that from his celebrity endorsements or any number of other, you know, things that are going on. It's true. Gwyneth Paltrow endorsed him and that, that (laughs) brings black men. (laughs) I mean, they they all love their goop products, Jonah. Uh, so I, that's what I've really been watching is the gender education divide because Republicans have been trying to win over black and Latino voters for decades. I mean, after 2012 and the autopsy report that the RNC did, it was like investing in communities of color and, uh, you know, little, little did they know and all that strategizing is that they didn't account for a hard left turn of white progressives. Like, yeah, which helps right. too. It's you know, and that's the thing that if you're if you're and I again talk to smart Democrats, a lot of them are really really grim right now, and one of the reasons why they're grim is they know exactly what is going on. They know exactly what is happening. This hard left turn in this white progressive base, and it's so hard to do anything about because these are the people who happen to staff the entire Democratic Party or a big chunk of the Democratic Party. They happen to staff the activist class. They happen to staff the media. Like this is sort of the the core of the entire uh, professional class of the Democratic Party and the left is the very people. It's the very people who are alienating huge sections of their own constituency. And what do you do about that? David, are you performing acts of grievous punnery by talking about how grim all of this is? <laughs> After um, the Ryan Grimm article. And, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a big article in The in the Intercept this week. I don't know if you guys have, have, have talked about it at all in the pod already, but, mm. but we have not. From, from Ryan Grimm writing in The Intercept, um, basically just, just describing in really concrete terms this phenomenon that you're talking about, where, yeah. where uh, all of these progressive advocacy groups have, uh, you know, um, I don't remember the specific ones they talked about, the ACLU, Sunrise, um, Sierra Club, uh, have basically just been convulsed by sort of internal uh, uh, strife and supposed kind of uh, uh, ideological sorting and 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 um, purity tests and things like that, and that, that have really actually kind of made them less effective as uh, 
as advocacy, advocacy organizations over the last couple of years. Um, I guess that's kind of an aside, but just, I, I, I couldn't resist the grim thing. I had to, yeah. I had to bring that up. <laughs> no, it's a great, it's a great article. It's fascinating. And it mirrors what so many people have told me from different walks of life on the left. Um, whether you're, you know, in one of these advocacy, advocacy groups or whether you're sort of a normie, um, liberal professor, uh, you, you actually kind of live with some fear in your heart, especially in the last couple of years. All right, Andrew, any last thoughts on primary special elections or Santa Claus? Uh, no, the, I mean, the only thing I was going to maybe mention is that we we should, of course, expect, um, as far as like the, the Todd Rice in South Carolina versus the previous races in Georgia thing is concerned, uh, it's not a statewide race, you know, like in, in, a, in a Republican district, Trump is going to have more influence um, over, you know, the, the Republican electorate uh, in one specific um, very red place than he would across all of Georgia, which, as you say, is is, is increasingly purple. I don't know. I, I'm I'm not the kind of analyst who knows exactly where to put all of those boxes in terms of assembling the the full picture. But um, but that that is the one thing I had to say. In terms of the House, I mean, nothing has changed on the prediction that Republicans can't really not win the House, barring some massive event between now and November. On the Senate, you know, Adam Laxalt won the Republican primary in Nevada. I think he's got as good a chance of any, but like, you know, you're going up against an incumbent Democrat in Nevada, a a relatively bluish, more than purple state at this point, but famous, famous last name in Nevada. So the last two that really are going to determine, I think, control of the Senate, Missouri, Arizona. And until we have those two, it's really hard to say that the Republicans do or don't have a good shot at taking the Senate, because if they nominate, you know, the wrong people in those two states, two states to lose would be huge. Um, so that's sort of what I'm still watching the, for. The Missouri race is going to be yeah. wild because, I mean, of course, Eric Greitens, former governor, former disgraced, resigned governor, very quick turnaround is now looking pretty strong in that race. A lot of people, I mean, and, and then basically Republican watchers are basically evenly split there between uh, if we nominate Eric Greitens, we could actually really like step on a rake and, and put the seat in play and others. Mitch McConnell has said that he thinks they could lose that seat right. if it's Greitens. Well, some of it is special pleading because nobody wants Eric Greitens to be uh, in the Senate for like 500 different very valid reasons. Um, so <laughs> right. like, I mean, he's because the, the allegations against him are very credible. They have not been debunked at all. And even, even before that, he was not well liked. Uh, he did not have a lot of allies internal to kind of like Republican, uh, political apparatus in Missouri, which is why part of the reason why everybody dropped him, um, incredibly quickly after the allegations came out, there was no circling the wagons at all. Um, but anyway, so he, so nobody likes him in the Senate. Nobody really likes him in the state. Steve Bannon likes him and that's getting him quite a ways. Um, uh, but I, I would be interested to see, I mean, it, it, it does not seem like a complete done deal that if he wins that nomination, he would not win in November. Um, even though that's possible. I mean, I think it makes it, it makes it more of a, more of a toss up. And I think, and I think that, that people are making that point for both of those reasons. All right, David, let's talk the gun bill moving through the Senate pretty rapidly looks, uh, set to go with more than 10 Republican votes. Nancy Pelosi says she supports it in the House, although I'm interested to see what her left flank yep. does. 
Um, walk through, though, the substance of it. Well, you know, the basic substance is pretty pretty simple to outline. One, and, and the part of it that I think could be um, pretty significant is it contains incentives for states to pass red flag laws. So this is not a federal red flag law bill, which, as we've discussed on flag, the flagship podcast, has some practical and legal problems attached to it. This is a uh, a part of the bill that would would grant, give DOJ grants to states that have or will implement red flag laws that meet certain conditions for due process. And this has a chance to do something where, you know, we had a really uh, good piece on the dispatch homepage, sort of um, trying, not trying to, but actually bursting the red flag bubble a little bit. But one of the the really important points in there was how rarely they're used in many jurisdictions. And so hopefully the funding here would allow people to be trained in them, to become aware of them, and actually utilize them. Um, That's an important piece of this. Another important piece of this is the enhanced background provision, uh, check provision for 21 and under, for those under 21. One of the problems when, you know, under the current system, if somebody's 18 years old, uh, they could have fairly recent juvenile problems that if those things had happened as an adult would have disqualified them from owning a weapon. But there was no way really to to um, screen for those individuals. And it's still you know going to be a little bit difficult to see how parts of that work out in practice. But giving an enhanced background screening that hopefully allows uh, authorities to dip further into a person's juvenile life to determine whether they should own a gun, I think is an important piece. Another important piece is strengthening um, straw purchase, uh, prohibitions against straw purchases. Uh, This is, so red flags, um, that's an issue aimed at two parts of the gun violence problem. That's mass shootings and suicides. Uh, The straw purchase element is really aimed at a part of the gun violence problems that's common crime. This is where a lot of criminals get their guns, just normal, common street criminals get their guns, is through a straw purchase. That's where a wife or a girlfriend or a friend who can legally purchase a weapon, purchase it and then gives it to you who cannot legally own a weapon. That's strengthening that kind of prosecution regime, I think is important. There are other things, What you know, money for school security, fine. Money for uh, mental health, fine, depending on how it's used. Uh, that are that are worthwhile, but the three really big points here are the red flag, the red flag provision, the strengthening of background checks for under twenty ones, and the um, and the the straw purchaser uh, toughening straw purchaser restrictions. And I think those each one of those things are important. And I'm not going to say any one of them solves anything. I mean that's. That's we're talking about a massive cultural issue here, but I do think they have a chance to make a difference. Jonah, does this have have any hope of moving forward or like with most things in D.C., bet on status quo? Well, it's always safe to bet on status quo. And it's also as as a matter of punditry. And, you know, I can I can give a little tip to Andrew here um, as he enters this exciting life. You can always just say, I think it's got about a 45 chance, 45% chance of passing. <laughs> See, this is and, why they put you on TV. <laughs> and, and like, you know, if you're proven right, eh, if you're proven wrong, how, what does right mean? It might as well be like Brian Fantana saying, you know, 60% of the time it works every time. I mean, it's just like, what? But um, 
I kind of think it will um, pass to be more serious about it. I, I think that the, and one of the reasons why, or the very least, if it fails, it'll be interesting in a new way for failure, right? I mean, like, that's one of the great things about this era in Washington is we're, we're, we're coming up with new ways to fail, not just the same old tired ways of failing. And um, because this, odds are it passes in the Senate. So if it dies, it'll die in the House. And normally, the elephant graveyard of all big ideas is the Senate, not the House, because the House can pass anything it wants because the way, you know, majority rules there. Um, so uh, I suspect it passes because they need something to talk about. Democrats need something going into the midterms to talk about and passing something modest and productive and then beating up on Republicans for not being more ambitious is an easy talking point to do. While at the same time, you get, you got to get to, you got to get to brag about the best of both worlds. It succeeded with some pi- bipartisanship, but of course the evil gun lobby prevented us from doing the really important things that we need to be reelected to do, yada, yada, yada. And, um, and I think Chris Murphy has successfully convinced enough senators, at least, that getting um, some modest successes is good on the merits politically because it can teach Republicans that, I think I was saying this last week, that it's not a death sentence to sort of do something. And, um, um, and Mitch McConnell can encourage enough people, uh, get, encourage enough senators, all I need is 10 who are running in competitive purplish states that bipartisanship looks good for them. So I think it, I, I would bet it passes the Senate and if it passes the Senate, I, I, I'd be surprised if Nancy Pelosi couldn't get enough Democrats to vote for it, um, or enough sort of moderate Republicans didn't break away to get it over the top. This would be such a huge loss for Joe Biden if it passes the Senate and doesn't pass the House because of the left flank. I mean, catastrophic. That would be political malpractice at a staggering level. And yet it feels very possible. Oh, it does. Very possible. 45%. (laughs) Yeah, you're right here. But Andrew is about to jump in. I saw you, Andrew. Oh, well, no, I was just I I was just going to say that that there is one uh, initially plausible sort of way this could die. That seems like it's not it's not shaping up, which is that um, that I I was initially a little bit surprised uh, that that Schumer and other parts of Democratic leadership were willing to do the whole, you know, don't make the perfect the enemy of the good uh, (laughs) sort of thing on this issue, because on 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 a lot of. Um, maybe not a lot of, but but on certain bills uh, in in the last few years that we've seen uh, sort of compromise come into play in the Senate. I'm, I'm mostly thinking about the the criminal justice reform um, thing with Tim Scott. Uh, ended up basically falling apart on the grounds that that you know Republicans were just not actually willing to negotiate on any of the uh, real main issues. That was Democrats' contention, and so they you know, spiked some of these efforts. And I was at least pleasantly surprised that this doesn't seem to be what's happening with, with this thing, with Schumer saying, you know, we, we would like this, this bill with all these other things that, that the president wants um, and that we would like to see, but we're definitely going to move forward on this uh, if and when it, uh, they get the handshake. You know, it would be interesting to do a piece on if the Democrats didn't have the perfect as the enemy of the good philosophy, what would could already be passed? That's mm-hmm. what I was going to say. Yeah. What if we applied this thinking and methodology to any number of other things and specifically 
immigration, uh, which I get is thornier in a lot of ways. There's so many more moving pieces, frankly, than in the gun conversation. But it's also, I mean, it really needs to be fixed. There's a lot of low-hanging fruit out there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, asylum stuff alone. They don't even tackle anything else. Just asylum. Uh, Also, though, on the, like, very other side of immigration being a mare's nest, David. Advisory opinion, shout out on that one. Um, <laughs> Joe is Why am I in this podcast, says Jonah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Electoral Count Act yes. fix. That does seem to be moving forward. They said they actually have some language right now. But again, like, why is this taking so long? This seems like a really easy thing if everyone would just put on their big boy pants. And yet. Can you imagine, like, if Trump wins in 2024 without them having gotten that passed, what, like, what history textbooks look like, you know, 100 yeah. years from now? You know, like, the the the, the proto-insurrection happened in, in 2020, yeah. and that was kind of messed up, and nobody ever and really did anything about it. And they knew they needed to fix it, it. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was, uh, yeah. they really wanted to make sure drop boxes were mandated everywhere, so they couldn't... <laughs> I mean, it is staggering. 24-hour Whataburger Dropbox. You could have asylum reform. You could have some modest electoral reform. You could have some decent police reform. You would have this gun reform. I mean. Carter Baker Commission finally put into action, like the action (laughs) transformer figure that it is. Dare to dream. Yeah, now you're way overreaching. (laughs) Someone someone on Twitter uh, mentioned, like, some school paper that, they were like a teacher mentioned the Carter Baker commission and they took a picture of it and tagged me. And I was like, yes, this is what I want. I want my fan base when they see Carter Baker commission to think Sarah Isger, I have already won. There's no more that I need to accomplish. And we'll take a quick break to hear from Aura. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And I'll tell you, not only have I given this picture frame to all the moms in my life, but I'm an only child, and it's been really fun to see my friends with siblings give this frame to their moms, and it turn into a passive-aggressive war to see which siblings can upload more pictures of their children. The Aura app is so easy. You can sit there at the end of the day while you're watching TV and just upload a couple pictures from the day and really show your brother-in-law who's boss. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code DISPATCH at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. All right, Jonah, you and I are going to talk. I mean, everyone else can like join in, but (laughs) I want to talk to you about the January 6th committee so far. Uh, You have thoughts, and then I have questions. Yes. So um, I wrote uh, my column this week on how I learned, the headline was how I learned to stop worrying and love the January 6th committee. (laughs) Um, And my my basic take on it is is that everyone's going to be disappointed. Everybody. Except me. Um, (laughs) And and what what I mean by that is, is like, Trump's not going to get criminally prosecuted. 
Uh, I have I have lots of thoughts about this criminal referral thing, which I just ranted about on my podcast. Like, it's such a red herring. The thing's already been criminally referred referred yeah. to DOJ. There's nothing more that a criminal referral would do because the DOJ has already said we're looking at this. But that's that's other golem fray that we don't need to get into since you're talking about mares nests. Um, uh, the um, I think it's not going to help Democrats in the midterms very much. Um, it's, uh, um, it's not going to give me the satisfaction I want where, uh, all of a sudden, all of the people who've been wrong in the last five years and defending Trump drop to their knees like John Belushi and blues brothers and beg for forgiveness. Uh, that's not going to happen. Um, but what it is doing is it's creating a certain amount of space to simply say what Trump did was bad that January 6th was bad, that he is largely responsible for it, and we need to move on. And part of the reason for that, and I don't want to belabor this, is, is you can't argue it's time to move on and this is old news unless you're conceding that what he did was bad right. <laughs> and, that, um, um, and that we all, you know, when you say, oh, we all knew this, what you're in effect saying is, yeah, we all knew he tried to steal the election and he lied about it and that he had something to do with the January 6th riot and that's all bad. You have no new information. And that gives a lot of permission structure to Republicans to sort of move on. And I, I can I, I can criticize uh, Step, Bill Stepien's personal integrity or courage about how he handled all this kind of stuff. But the fact that a lot of political apparatchiks feel like it's in their interest to tell the truth about all of this kind of stuff is a good sign. And I think that that's good. At the same time, I think that the, I think the hearing is not going very well on its own terms in the sense that it seems, um, I, I thought it was a very bad sign. I'm curious what you guys think that they had to cancel impromptu, you know, impromptu all of a sudden they, they canceled the DOJ hearing and, their excuse was, or postponed it, I should say. Um, their excuse was basically the guys in the AV shop need more time to put the videos together. <laughs> and the only reason why that strikes me as plausible is that it's such an embarrassing explanation that it's kind of a tell on yourself. It's sort of like when, you know, when politicians say something like, oh, there's no way I could have taken a bribe on that date. I was with a hooker. <laughs> um, it just sort of like, it, it, it and I personally... I suspect that it may have had something to do with the fact that John Eastman dumped that the court released all those John Eastman emails that made them think, Oh my gosh, there's some, there's something new here. Um, or it could have been that the internal bickering that was on display on Tuesday, um, about whether or not they're going to do a criminal referral caused them to just say, let's kick the can down the road. Cause that was going to be the theme of the day. um, um, or it could just be just the truth of that, that they just, they literally didn't have their ducks in the row. I just find that hard to believe given that Bill Stepien canceled at the last minute and they had all that video keyed up for that. But this event was planned for a long time and they're like, we don't know how to get this stuff ready. And that just, that's a weird excuse. So. I'm so done. it started a panic in legal Twitter and frankly, like network news uh, was, you know, sending around emails because people thought there was a chance that they delayed because they knew somehow that the Dobbs 
opinion was going to come out from the Supreme Court on Wednesday morning because there it was an opinion hand down day Wednesday at 10 a.m., which was when they were scheduled to start. In any other year, I would have felt so confident, you know, emailing a producer back and being like, let me tell you why that's the dumbest thing ever. Uh, <laughs> members, staff on the House committee have no clue what the Supreme Court's doing. They get no heads up. Nice try. Except that this year, you know, there is a leaker in the court. And for all I know, they did tip off the committee. And so I wasn't willing to say that it wasn't true. And it like also was praying that it wasn't true because leaking the Dobbs opinion, we don't know their motivation and there's any number of like versions of why they did it. But if then they had tipped off the January 6th committee to delay a hearing, it would have been so partisan and gotten the court so much more enmeshed in partisan politics. I think it, I I actually believe it would have been worse than the original leak (laughs) Mm -hmm. to have had that coordination going on. Um, So very relieved when we got uh, five or six snoozers on Wednesday. Um, And it means Jonah, like maybe they, maybe the Supreme court was a factor. They were worried that Dobbs was going to come out and realize that they had like not paid enough attention to their timing on this, given that it was June but as we, as you said, like there's also like three other reasons. Yeah, they they uh, on Tuesday or whatever day that was, Bill Bill Stepien had to go with his wife and everybody on the committee's like, how did we not have that on our calendars? And then they're just like <laughs> casting around, like, oh my gosh, what could happen tomorrow? And they're like, people, the Supreme Court is going to hand out, and wouldn't that just be our luck? So yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I will yeah. say that there was a weird energy uh, Tuesday night. There was, I was getting an unusual number of uh, questions about whether it'd be available for media on Wednesday after the Supreme court uh, uh, announcements. I was getting texts from folks, a number of folks saying, is it just me or is there something building here? Like there was a, there was a kind of weird, and maybe that's just going to happen before every single hand down day between now and, uh, and between now and the end of the term. But there was definitely something in the air Tuesday night that, made me think, wait, do some people know some things that they're not supposed to know? Yeah. So David, I have found the committee, I, I, I think I am the worst possible audience for these hearings because I'm a contrarian. And so every time I hear something, I want to ask the follow-up question of like, yeah, but. And there's no one on the committee to do that because nobody is actually skeptical of the thesis of the committee and so I want to know, you know, these are depositions that they're largely right. working from when they're showing these videos, which means there's no cross-examination. Um, depositions are one side getting to ask well, questions. There is the other cro- side gets to The whole to thing is cross-examination. There's no direct examination. Fair, kind of. Some of these people, I don't know, whichever way you want to think about it. But regardless, it's not an adversarial process, really. And so it, it, it appears more like a theater slash PhD presentation um, and less persuasion, actually, because to me, a an adversarial process is far more persuasive to have someone poke the weak arguments and then know what the pushback is to those. And instead, everyone already agrees who's there. And so I don't so I don't know. You're I, not the normal I audience. Like uh, I know. OK, so the whole reason why you have an adversarial process is because when one side gets to say it's peace and the other side doesn't, 
the one side that says it's peace is more persuasive. So if you only have the prosecution, that's not advantageous for the defense, you know, like that the defense. Except if you're me. This is like when I gave dating advice on advisory opinions and someone got in the comments and was like, dear men listening to this, Sarah is not normal. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, the, the defense does not make the prosecution more persuasive. Like, that's not the <laughs> typical process. But aren't you left wondering what some of these folks would say if they got to answer, like, basic questions? I mean, even on the, like, Bill Barr, Trump is unattached from reality. I I wanted to have someone on from the other side, from the Trump team, poke at that, ask him questions. Trump is very attached to reality. Nobody's ever been more attached to reality. <laughs> he is than the <laughs> most attached. To the best reality. <laughs> Since I'm since I'm sitting in for Steve here, uh, I want to quick make a point that he's made on Twitter about this thing a couple of times, which is just that, like, I, I think you're right, Sarah, that that there that it is um, at the very least, it's it's a an arrow in the quiver of people who who want to you know just wave past all the January six stuff, like oh, it's this, it's this show trial thing, it's not an adversarial process. That that's it's just a permission that basically gives a permission structure to ignore the whole thing altogether. But um, I think from a from a kind of reasonable minded person coming at this sort of thing. Uh, one important point is that these are all people who you would think that their personal interest and at least their, their previous personal loyalty is that they're Trump people. So like, even though, um, it is only one side of the story, it matters that it is all of these people giving that side of the story. And, and, you know, they're well, the sure, ones it means it. that I believe that what they are saying is accurate, but it doesn't believe mean that I believe that it is the whole version, like that if you ask them other questions that you wouldn't get more, a more wholesome, fulsome version of, um, of what occurred, if that makes sense. Like, I agree that if they're like statements against interest in some sense, but like, if you can't ask follow-up questions, I don't know what we're doing. It is telling to me that the, the argument you're making, Sarah, tends to end, begin and end with process. Because if I have a, if I have a strong defense Here's what I'm going to say. My defense is going to be, how dare you not have my defense representative here at the table? Because if he was there, this is what he'd say. Okay. So the Trump people, it's how dare you not have my defense representative at the table? And then <laughs> and then you say, well, okay. Well, what would he say? Well, how dare you not have my defense rep? In- fair. So that's mm-hmm. fair that... Like they have every opportunity through other means to push back on yeah. this. And we're seeing no pushback yeah. of any real sort other than the process argument. And I, again, I want to be clear that I think my position on this is different <laughs> because I am inclined to agree with the thesis. But the fact that I don't hear from someone skeptical, like makes me less comfortable with it versus I don't want to agree with the thesis. It's because I want to agree with the thesis that I want that adversarial process. I, 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 I agree. It's, it would be more effective, I think, if you had Trump defender, some Trump-friendly people there to make, you know, counter Or frankly, if Liz or Adam played that role on the committee, they don't need to fully buy into it, but if they would play at least a little bit of a more skeptical role, it would help. I, I, I agree. At the same time... Um, it's and I agree with David's points entirely, but like at the same time, the way I think about it is that this is basically the prosecution's summation to the jury in a way, right? And 
And unfortunately, this summation to the jury should have been made in a friggin' impeachment trial a year and a half <laughs> right. ago. Yeah, right, right. And so this is this is this is a impeachment by other means, continuation thing, politically and psychologically, and all sorts of other things, and reflects the failure of of our leaders in all sorts of ways. At the same time, I think there's a I think your version of this criticism is a good faith and perfectly defensible criticism to make. There's also a very bad faith version of it, which basically is. Like, if Jim Jordan were there... <laughs> He'd tear them a new one. All of this would be knocked down because he's this brilliant, good-faith debater. Um, you know, he's the Clarence Darrow of our age, <laughs> and he would be bringing up all of these facts, you know, these re- re- substantive rebuttal facts that would show what a farce and, and Stalinist social... And if, guys, if I keep hearing people call this friggin' thing Stalinist one more time, oh, I mean, like, God. a Stalinist show trial involves, like threatening to murder a dude's wife <laughs> in front of them if they don't confess to a crime. That's, that, that's not this. Um, but I think the best example is that at the end of the impeachment hearing, with lawyers on both sides, I felt very comfortable knowing exactly what my opinion should be on that and how I would vote. If you asked me to vote at the end of this, I think I would decline to do so for a lack of having... What would the best arguments on the other side be? And we, we should and we should note that this is exactly the strategic calculation that Republicans made going in, right? Yeah. Um, is that right. they that it was Republicans who, when Pelosi said you can't put Jim Jordan on this thing, he voted not to certify the election. You know, um, you, you can't put stop the Steelers on this committee. Republicans then took the like made the strategic calculation that that putting people in the position to have this, this opinion that Sarah's putting forward is actually better for Republicans in the long run politically than if they had put people on the committee to, to, you know, make the process more adversarial. So I, I, I do take your point about like, well, why couldn't Cheney or Kinzinger have done it? Um, and I think maybe there, there, there's something to that, but we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that why it is that there aren't any Republicans. On that's this, an excellent uh, point. That, see, that's why we have an adversarial process, because that is a very persuasive point to me right now. Well, there you go. All right. Well, with that, one quick update from our fact checkers, me Googling, uh, while probably David was talking, let's be honest. (laughs) Wait Um, a minute. (laughs) uh, To update on stealing thunder, I'll just provide the facts that I didn't have at the time. It was actually an 18th century playwright. In his unsuccessful play, Appius and Virginia, he used an artificial thunder machine. And then uh, he showed up to a performance of Macbeth, and he is purported to have said, that is my thunder, by God. The villains will play my thunder, but not my plays. And that's where Steal My Thunder came from. Now, that was very much worth your time, I think we'll all agree. But on things that are perhaps not worth as much of your time. Lynn Wood, one of the attorneys who was part of the stolen election narrative in Georgia, has come out recently as a flat earther. (laughs) And Jonah, can you fill in any more blanks on flat eartherism or this version of flat eartherism? Yeah, so uh, he posted on social media that he... um, So... The fact that he came out as a flat earther is interesting or it's amusing um, in a trivial sort of get this, you know, call the orderlies in and have this man removed kind of way. Um, but he he says that the Bible says that the earth is flat. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, 
he is he believes the earth is flat and then he uh, in a follow-up post he said you may have heard that i have entered the de- the flat earth debate in america <laughs> which is like my favorite sentence in a long time and he um um and then he made this argument which i actually think is kind of clever in a twisted kind of way since he grounds his belief in this in the in the flatness of the earth as a biblical thing, the people who are attacking him for being a flat earther are really attacking the Bible. Mm. And um, I'll defer to David and Egger on on the theological questions here, but um, I really do love this idea that he can, you know, he 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 considers the flat Earth debate one of these like open debates that America is like raging with, like 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 red flag laws or the January 6th committee, whether the earth is in fact flat. These are like the debates that everybody's engaged in as a, on a regular basis. And I find it amusing. David, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. And I'm curious uh, how you answer this if the Bible in fact says that the earth is flat. Point of order. <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> There's no, 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 no. It's a, it's like a, it's a figurative reference to the, the four corners of the earth is where they get this. It's, yeah. it's, Can you make four corners out of a circle? Andrew? <laughs> Are you asking me to do it right now? Like right here on this, on this audio only podcast? I don't know. I mean, it's a, it's, it's, it's absurd. It's so absurd. I will say this though. I did one evening when I was completely bored and I couldn't sleep went down flat earth YouTube, uh, the flat earth YouTube rabbit hole. And it's something else. And I will say this, that if the earth was flat, it's not, but it, let's just pretend in a world that it is. It's cool. Like, like this whole, they have this whole thing where there's like a wall around the earth. Like there's this, yeah, there's this huge Truman show. Yeah. It's like Truman show, except it's an impenetrable ice wall. And, but that's interesting because that means that the earth, like, it's not, a, it's still a three-dimensional space then. Yeah. So it, think of it more like a cone with the circle at the top is flat. Okay. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So it's like. Mm-hmm. So we're trapped inside the ice cream cone. Yeah. So the mole men live at the bottom of the cone. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> it's turtles. Turtles, Correct. Jonah. The whole yeah. cosmology. Right. Yeah. No, there, I, it, it is amusing. It's also very grim. Yeah. Um, I mean, just to, to kind of. Tra- trace Linwood's descent into smaller and smaller and more and more insane concentric circles. I mean, we, we, when 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 Jonah said he posted this stuff on on social media, he's posting on his Telegram, which is like the most echo chambery, uh, insane way that that a lot of these nuts end up doing all their posting because it's literally just his channel. It's just his thoughts. He just fires off his thoughts and gets a million clicks. And likes and things like that. And there's, it's, it's, uh, you know, Nick Fuentes is on Telegram. Uh, a lot of these uh, people are on Telegram. But, but Lynn Wood, you know, formerly sort of flamboyant, but kind of well respected lawyer, becomes a Stop the Stealer. Shortly after becoming a Stop the Stealer, becomes like the most insane Stop the Stealer of all time, such that many other Stop the Stealers disown him. Yes. Regular, mm-hmm. regular villain who is brought up at David Perdue campaign events a sta- uh, in, in, in Georgia, who is a Stop the Steal candidate. His whole purpose for existing is Stop the Steal. But he and a lot of these Stop the Steal people who came out to support him all can't stand Lynn Wood, all think Lynn Wood was a, was a detriment to, 
to the, their efforts in 2020. And, and as, as he just kind of gets more and more conspiratorially minded and, and is preaching to a smaller and smaller choir of, of people who are as insane as he is, I mean, you just, there's literally no bottom. I mean, there's, there's no bottom to flat earth. It's really, it's really unsettling to me. I mean, I don't know. It's, well, if you it, see the cone shape, there is a bottom to the flat earth. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Here's something, Andrew, you said he's on tele. He's not just on social media. He's on telegram. You want to know a chilling fact? Telegram has more users than Twitter. Does it really? Yeah. It has more users than Twitter. So, huh. yeah. Well, Tragically, one of the leading flat earthers died in 2020. He wanted to go up into the, you know, first layers of uh, space with a homemade rocket. And that didn't work. He was filming the stunt for a Science Channel series. Although, according to Wikipedia, at least, after his death, a public relations representative revealed that he had only used flat earth as a PR stunt to acquire funding for his homemade rocket that ended up killing him. So flat earth, also a little dangerous. I want to meet the investors who would not invest in a private rocket thing unless it was to prove <laughs> a flat earth thing. Because I I feel like I could get some money out of them for all sorts of things. <laughs> have, you guys, have you guys seen or heard of this movie from a couple of years ago? I, I, I want to say it's called Beyond the Curve or Behind the Curve, something like that. It's a movie about flat earth people and kind of like, high ups in that community. And it's, it's a really interesting, really kind of like human moving documentary because it just, I mean, it like treats these people as people and not as like punchlines and kind of examines all of the ways in which, well, (laughs) examines all the ways in which they've kind of like found a real sense of belonging and purpose here. And that's part of why they're so impervious to. Yes. But this is my argument for all sorts of things. People look for community and they're finding it in increasingly dangerous yes. places. Flat yeah. Earth is not a dangerous place, aside if you're going to make a homemade rocket and go up too high and fall down. <laughs> yeah, but, but Sarah, you also think that this podcast would be better if we had an adversarial conversation about Flat Earth stuff. This, is, like, this has become an adversarial conversation <laughs> about Flat it Earth. It is now. Yeah. I feel very adversarial. <laughs> um, yeah, but like you wonder why these young men are, are finding white supremacy and stuff. Like, this is why it's the same thing as flat eartherism. It's a community that welcomes them and gives them a sense of meaning and purpose and leadership that they're not getting at home and not during COVID when they were uh, just bewilderingly not allowed to go to school, but also not allowed to play outside with friends. Good plan, Mm -hmm. everyone. That worked out super well. All right. Well, this was fun. If you have thoughts about this podcast or the turtles holding up the earth. You can become a member of the dispatch and hop into the comments section, or you can provide comments on uh, iTunes, wherever you're getting your podcast from. It helps other people find it when you rate us. So do that too. And we will talk to you next week.